This is Law Bites, a podcast with Michael Geist. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. I have the honour to present in both official languages the 16th report of the Standing Committee on Industry, Science and Technology entitled Statutory Review of the Copyright Act. Pursuant to Standing Order 109, the committee requests that the government table a comprehensive response to this report. Mr. Speaker, I'd also like to thank all committee members, all those that appeared before committee, those that took the time to meet with us on our five-city tour, and those that took the time to submit online documents. The committee consulted a broad range of stakeholders to ensure as many perspectives could be considered. In all, we held 52 meetings, heard 263 witnesses, collected 192 briefs, and received more than 6,000 emails and other correspondence. I also want to thank our committee's clerk, analysts, and all the supporting staff for doing such an amazing job keeping us on track through such a lengthy and, op- and complex study. Thank you. In December 2017, the Canadian government launched its much-anticipated and much-lobbied review of Canadian copyright law, tasking the Standing Committee on Industry, Science and Technology to lead the way. After months of study and hundreds of witnesses and briefs, the committee released its review with 36 recommendations earlier this month. The report takes a decidedly evidence-based approach and is notable both for what it recommends and rejects. Recommendations include expanding fair dealing and adding flexibility to Canada's digital lock rules, while the committee rejected a website blocking system and a proposal to exclude education from fair dealing where a license is otherwise available. I had the chance to appear before the committee. My remarks were the subject of an earlier Law Bites podcast, as did this week's guest, Osgood Hall Law Professor Karis Craig. Professor Craig is one of Canada's leading copyright law experts, and she joins me to help sort through the report and what it means for the future of Canadian copyright law. Karis, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me on. After a year of study on the copyright review with hundreds of witnesses and briefs, the Standing Committee on Industry, Science, and Technology that everyone just calls INDU uh, has finally released its report. Why don't we start with the background of how this came about? So why was there a copyright review and and who exactly is INDU? Okay, great. So yes, this is the culmination of a five-year review that was actually mandated by the 2012 Copyright Modernization Act. And so when that was passed, um, itself the result of many years of consultation and consideration of potential reforms, um, the notion was that it would be worth revisiting in five years to understand the way in which the Act was taking shape, how it was being applied, and of course bearing in mind the sort of rapidity of technological change. So five years rolled around and the committee was struck in order to uh, conduct this review and that itself took some considerable time so that it's only now in 2019 of course that we're finally receiving this report. Okay so the the initial law, or at least the reforms back in 2012, so you've got to review this every five years. It takes a couple of, takes some time to get it going. They went with INDU, uh, and so that's the industry side. And, and I uh, imagine that there was some debate, at least internally and 
certainly externally about which committee amongst the potential committees, I suppose, that the gover- that the House of Commons has that they chose to conduct this study. Yes, that's right. So in Canada, there are um, two ministries that kind of have an eye on copyright policy. So that is heritage and the industry, um, science um, (laughs) and technology uh, ministry. And so there's always been um, a degree of um, I think maybe it's fair to say tension in terms of who takes the lead. And certainly what we've seen over the years is that um, both ministries have a kind of different approach to copyright policy. And so that means it can make kind of a vital difference which industry or which um, ministry, sorry, takes the lead in copyright review and copyright reform, which is, of course, exactly what we've seen in this particular process. Right. So industry led, but... There is also a study report that the Committee for Canadian Heritage, the Standing Committee on Canadian Heritage, released, which was supposed to be on artists' remuneration, but has at least been painted by some as the copyright review or a parallel copyright review. I don't believe it is. Actually, I know it isn't. The copyright review is the report that Indu released. Uh, Can you walk us through a little bit the procedural side of the story that that led to this heritage study? Sure. Well, I mean, this is just as far as I know or as far as I've been able to glean. But certainly the industry committee was tasked with conducting the sort of authoritative parliamentary review of the Copyright Act. And perhaps in some ways as a salve to any um, criticism that it should have gone to heritage or heritage ought to be involved. I don't know. Um, The industry committee requested an advisory Subreport. I think that's the best way to understand it um, from the Canadian Heritage Department. And so the the sense was that this was to be, as you said, an examination of remuneration models for artists and creative industries, looking at things like rights management, considering things like new access points, streaming, and and reflecting then on sort of the challenges and opportunities um, presented by these new technologies in light of um, you know the 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 um, economic interests of artists and creative industries. Now, there's an awful lot of interesting work being done on the ways in which um, access to content is shifting, consumer behaviours are shifting, and the way in which new technology is providing new um, opportunities or avenues for remuneration or exploitation at the same time as it's threatening old ones. So there really was, I think, a lot of scope to produce a very interesting, thorough survey of these changes in a way that really could have informed a copyright review process and really made sure that it was a sort of modern review process that had its eye on where things currently stand in technology and in the economy of the cultural industries. Um, As you suggested, that's unfortunately not uh, what we got. And I think the reason why people see this review report from Heritage as a parallel report is that it essentially seemed to cover the same ground as the industry committee was was covering, but of course to do it from a very different perspective and with a very different result. And I think that at the end of the day is just unfortunate um, and it's a missed opportunity. But I think the main thing is, of course, that the authoritative review comes from the industry committee. Right. I'd agree with that. So 
now that we understand what that heritage study is or isn't, let's talk. On, let's talk about the authoritative review, the, the actual Canadian copyright review conducted by Indu. For me, it was striking when you took take a look, took a look back at it, just how broad it was. I mean, it, it certainly ran for a long time. There were hearings held in cities across the country, something you didn't see with Heritage, multiple phases, and both of us participated in the third phase where they brought in some of the academics and the like, and it touched on just about every major copyright issue. I wonder what some of your top-line impressions or key takeaways were from the report. Well, certainly it was very broad. It was extremely thorough, and it really is impressive, I think, um, the number of um, people who were able to sort of weigh into the review process, who were able to make their submissions, have their testimony heard, and ultimately the fact that really everyone who provided oral or written testimony is cited in the report. So given the sort of vast landscape that this covers and the number of um, perspectives that were considered, um, I think the review, although it's long, actually does a really nice job of sort of crystallising um, the, the primary or the main issues that are facing us when we're thinking about copyright law today. And... Um, and, uh, you know, and creating a sort of overview of the current landscape um, that is going to be very valuable, I think, going forward. Um, and it's not surprising when we think about, um, you know, the process that led up to the 2012 Act itself. Um, as you know, there were many bills, there was much consultation, it took many years, and it was an attempt to to um, bring Canada, quote unquote, up to date with technological developments by finally sort of ratifying the 1996 um, um, the Internet Treaties and uh, following the lead of the US um, Digital Millennium Copyright Act. And so there was an awful lot that was done in 2012 um, that itself created lots of new um, lots of new considerations and concerns in copyright law. So, first of all, we had um, new protections for digital locks, which we'd never had before. We had uh, a notice and notice system that was a sort of Canada-made solution to navigating copyright for internet service providers. We had a new cause of action called enablement infringement um, for the provision of network services that primarily enabled copyright infringement by users. And then on the other side of the ledger, we had an expanded fair dealing defence with new enumerated purposes of education and parody and satire. And we had lots of new exceptions for common consumer uses like making backup copies and time shifting TV programmes and making user-generated content. So there was a lot there, and there was a lot that needed revisiting. And of course, there were people who were happy with one side of that uh, and not with the other. And so, if nothing else, what this five-year review gave us was an opportunity for everybody to kind of come out and talk about the good and the bad and the ugly as they saw it in that 2012 Act and hope that they could maybe expand what they saw as good and roll back what they saw as bad. And so, you know, there was a lot at stake here and there were lots of people with interests um, that they wanted to be represented around the table. Right. I'm, I'm glad you, you enumerated so many of the changes that took place in 2012. I'm often struck by those that claim that Canadian copyright law is woefully out of date and we haven't made changes in a long time. And as you 
went through that very long list of changes. It was a true overhaul in 2012. We are still quite clearly grappling with very recent changes uh, that were comprehensive in nature. And and so was, it, it's worth noting, the committee. So why don't, why don't we get into a few of those changes that took place in 2012 that then became focal points for discussion at the committee and, and as part of their report. And there are a few issues, I think, that took more time. I don't think there's any actually issue that took more of the committee's time and was a bigger focal point than the issue around education and copyright, which ironically enough, isn't solely a 2012 copyright reform issue, but leaving that aside, dozens of witnesses coming from across the landscape, education groups, authors, publishers, copyright collectives, all presenting their case on the impact of the state of Canadian copyright law and what it means for education, in particular educational copying. Where did the committee land after hearing all of these different perspectives? Um, well, maybe just starting at the end then, where did the committee land? Um, <laughs> because this is really, I think, um, for me, one moment in the report where I, I would have hoped, I think, for something more like um, a resolution or a substantive recommendation. And instead, I think what we see in this respect is that the committee, I don't want to say it hedges its bets, but it refuses to endorse really either the proposals that were made by Access Copyright um, and the publishers in terms of limiting fair dealing, but also it doesn't give the educational institutions, um, you know, um, absolute or unbridled support for their assertions that their practices are um, lawful and consistent with fair dealing. And, and so we end up actually with a recommendation um, that the government should consider facilitating um, discussions between the education sector and copyright collectives to try to build um, consensus um, around these issues going forward. And of course, that's with a view, I think, in particular to the fact that there is ongoing litigation between Access Copyright and York University um, that remains to be resolved before the Federal Court of Appeal and may well proceed to the Supreme Court of Canada. So I think actually the recommendation is perhaps appropriately cautious or responsive to the fact that these issues are very fraught and ongoing. Um, on the other hand, I, I, you know, there's a suggestion that the courts are, I think the, the committee uses the language, appropriately um, sceptical or that the courts have appropriate scepticism about the assertions of educational institutions claiming that their practices um, are systemically uh, fair dealing practices or lawful practices in relation to educational materials. And I personally find that unfortunate because it kind of weighs into, into the issues or steps into the fray. Um, on the other hand, I think the, the positive thing is that um, the committee expressly refuses to endorse the proposal that was put forward by Access and by other publishers that um, we roll back the um, changes that were made to fair dealing in 2012. So specifically, um, we added education as a purpose, um, which means that something where someone's engaged in education, broadly speaking, as a purpose, then we can move the analysis um, of the lawfulness of use 
onto the question of whether that use is fair. Now, as you suggested, that actually wasn't um, the critical moment for the expansion of fair dealing in Canada. That moment actually came, um, well, first with the Supreme Court's ruling in uh, the CCH case, and uh, then subsequently with the ruling in the Alberta case, which basically said that educational classroom uses of copyright protected materials um, could be fair dealing for the purposes of private study in certain circumstances. And so um, the argument over whether education should be enumerated or not enumerated uh, seems to miss the point that the Supreme Court articulated a broad user rights focused understanding of fair dealing, whether it's for private study or for education. Right. And so I, I think you're right about the, the role that, that the Supreme Court has played in influencing where those policies are. You know, it, 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 for me, the, the striking comment coming out of the committee was the reference to the fact that it may be technological disruption and technological change that is driving change in the education sector far more than fair dealing has, which you can pick, you know, whichever lines you like out of the committee, it's clear they were trying to strike a bit of a balance or at least recognize that there are arguments that they were hearing on both sides of it. At a certain level, when you look at a couple of the other recommendations they had, which included don't conduct a review every five years and get us more data through Statistics Canada and even Canada research chairs focused on this stuff, it's pretty clear that the, the committee itself was torn in part because it feels it's early and the amount of data that was out there was itself at times conflicting. And they wanted to, I guess, take a bit more time, see this play out. And of course, as you mentioned, we've got these court case, we've got the big court case playing itself through the courts as well. Yeah, no, I think that's right. I think that was a very important um, statement by the committee to recognize that the claims that were before it um, being made by the Canadian publishers and others that they're suffering um, you know, drastically at the hands of this expanded fair dealing for educational uses. Um, the, the fact that the committee didn't endorse that and didn't accept that and pointed to the fact that there are many other causes and other changes that are taking place in the educational landscape um, around the use of materials. So open educational resources and the use of digital bundling. And also, I think the, um, the, the, the fact that our libraries are so much more savvy about negotiating copyright licenses and there are easier ways to do this now. Certainly, the landscape around educational materials has changed dramatically over the past 10 or 15 years, even over the past five years. And so I think, you know, the committee is right to be wary of wading in and coming up with a kind of one size fits all solution to this. Um, on the other hand, given the amount of attention that was paid to this at uh, the time and during the hearings and the amount of evidence that has been presented by all sides, even if overwhelming, it's ultimately, I think, disappointing that we're still sort of waiting for any kind of definitive resolution on something that is so in the educational environment today. Yeah, that's fair. Though I would note that as part of the committee's recommendations, that that was not the only discussion they had around fair dealing. And while they were being pushed to roll back fair dealing with respect to education and, and clearly rejected that as an approach, what they also did was expand fair dealing effectively with a call for more a more flexible approach. 
could you comment on that and, and why it hasn't got a lot of attention, at least in some of the media coverage, but certainly struck me as perhaps one of the most notable recommendations the committee made? Absolutely. No, I agree. And it's, um, you know, so we're talking about broadening fair dealing so that it is no longer tied just to specific enumerated purposes in the Act, but actually is capable of being applied more generally or more flexibly to encounter new kinds of uses that are fair according to all of the normal fairness factors, but which might not be squeezed into one of the enumerated purposes. And this is something that's very close to my heart. It's something that I wrote my master's thesis on, you know, coming up 20 years ago. And I have consistently been um, writing and arguing and advocating for the expansion of fair dealing so that we don't tie it to particular enumerated purposes. Um, so for me, certainly, this is one of the most um, important recommendations and something I'm very happy to see. And I'm also, I think, quite happy to see that there hasn't been a huge reaction to it, because I think that tells us that the time for this has come, that, um, you know, certainly against the backdrop of Supreme Court jurisprudence that has urged a large and liberal reading of those purposes, and then just looking at the legislative process involved in trying to add new purposes like education, like parody and satire, and then lots of new specific enumerated exceptions for backup copies or user-generated content. I think it's become clear to everybody that the the better way to go is just to add two simple words such as to um, to the fair dealing provisions and really allow them to operate in a way that um, is not only flexible right now but is flexible over time and as technologies evolve. Yeah, I think that's right. It's it's striking. That was certainly one of the big issues that was raised back as part of the 2012 reforms uh, as the committee was thinking about, as you mentioned, several new exceptions that a such as approach, one that would open it up to any purposes, because at the end of the day, the fairness isn't really dictated by the purpose, but rather by a series of other factors that are considered uh, was was a far better approach, one that would be, in a sense, technology neutral and and better better able to adapt to changes. It's nice to see the committee recognize that several years later, even as it has also identified yet another fair dealing, effectively fair dealing purpose for informational analysis to, mm-hmm. sort, of, to sort of support uh, AI. Now, that's not the only revisiting of a 2012 reform that has some connection to fair dealing. So there was an argument for such as back in 2012 wasn't accepted. It's accepted by the committee now. Another area where the committee has, in effect, had a bit of a rethink from 2012 has to do with those anti-circumvention rules, the digital locks mm-hmm. that you mentioned earlier. Can you tell Can you tell us a bit what the, the committee now says we ought to be thinking about when it comes to digital locks? Sure. So this is another really important um, recommendation, I think, and again, something that I've um, been thinking and arguing about for for several years now, as you know. Um, And so the question is the extent to which we should be protecting um, digital locks or technological protection measures um, under the Copyright Act and the extent to which that additional layer of protection for digital locks should in uh, potentially subvert, I think, the underlying purposes of copyright or the shape and scope of the rights that the Act protects. 
So that's to say, you know, we're carefully tailoring and debating the scope of any particular owner's right and then the scope or the reach of user rights. And then along come digital locks and they get layered over the top and they get protected no matter what they're protecting underneath um, or to what extent. And what that risks doing, I think, is preventing people from... Uh, engaging in otherwise lawful uses with the content that's behind the lock. So being unable to access that content, to use that content for um, things that are fair dealing purposes or that are fair or lawful, um, whether it's user-generated content, whether um, it's criticism or review or accessing public domain materials contained in the work. Um, you know, and this is presented concern over time. I think um, there was a lot of mobilising around this in the lead up to 2012. We saw different iterations of the anti-circumvention provisions in different bills in the lead up to 2012. And, um, you know, I was disappointed at that time that in the end, what we did was create a provision that essentially just mirrors what the U.S., um, had asked for and protects um, under the Digital Millennium Copyright Act. And so that is, there weren't exceptions for non-infringing uses and there weren't provisions to ensure that people could continue to access work for non-infringing purposes and there weren't um, exceptions to ensure that people could actually get their hands on the kinds of devices that would allow them to do so anyway. So all of this was very problematic and I'm very pleased then to see the committee now kind of revisit the issue and to acknowledge that there's a problem there, that um, although there might be good reasons to protect TPMs, that it doesn't make sense for um, us to be protecting them um, when what they're essentially doing is preventing someone from doing something that's authorised under the Copyright Act. And so the committee points specifically to facilitating maintenance, repair or adaptation of a lawfully acquired device for non-infringing purposes. But in the observations, they make the more broader observation um, that people should be able to engage in authorised acts and lawful acts and that TPMs shouldn't prevent them from doing so. Yeah, I agree that the right to repair is clearly what's, what was driving some of that discussion at the committee, but the, their comment is certainly far broader than that as part of their observations. And given given how, how much attention this issue got back leading up to the 2012 reforms, it was, it was undoubtedly one of the very top issues that Canadians were talking about, yet ultimately rejected, I think, largely due to pressure from the United States. It's nice to see it revisited and nice to see the committee coming around to where I think many Canadians were back when they first instituted these rules. You know, one, one of the other areas that the committee touches on that has also attracted a lot of attention, and it's attracting a lot of attention now, has to do with copyright term. I was mm -hmm. speaking with Myra Tofik just last week about copyright term and its the, the potential extension as part of the USMCA. The committee talked about term two. Um, what did it have to say? Yes, yeah, so this is another place where um, I was, you know, both surprised and very pleased um, to see the committee actually address this as though it's not a fait accompli, as though it's not something that Canada necessarily has to do um, by virtue of its international obligations. And that is extending the copyright term from the life of the author in 50 years 
to the life of the author and 70 years. And, you know, we saw in the Heritage Report um, the suggestion that no one had really objected to this and that we recognized it was something that was going to have to happen. And so the Heritage Report just recommended that it should happen. And so what's really refreshing, I think, um, looking at the industry review is a critical engagement with that assertion. So first of all, questioning or accepting that, you know, maybe it has to happen, but we should ideally not do it. And therefore, if it does happen, we have to find ways to mitigate um, the costs or the harms that this term extension would cause in Canada. Um, and so, you know, first of all, that just, you know, is a recognition of the importance of the public domain, of the significance of having uh, as short a term as we can possibly have to ensure that works fall into the public domain and are available to be freely used and to circulate and to be reused once copyright ends. Um, and then there's some creative sort of thinking around how we might mitigate the harm of a term extension if it is indeed necessary. And so here, you know, because the international baseline requirements in the Berne Convention um, are life plus 50 years, um, what that means is that there might be some room for us to um, create conditions for copyright protection beyond that term that um, that we wouldn't be allowed to have during that term, right? So whereas we're not allowed to have formalities like registration um, for life plus 50, maybe for those extra 20 years, we could require that copyright owners register or re-register their work, maybe pay a fee for that additional time, that there might be other formalities so that it's not just an automatic continuation um, of term, but is actually a sort of surplus benefit that we make available on certain conditions. Um, and, you know, there's some good economic sense behind that kind of proposal. One would assume that if there's an economic value um, ongoing for the exploitation of a particular work, that the copyright owner will be willing to register and to pay. And, um, and so that will probably still be available for, for works. And, you know, that's to my mind, still unfortunate because it takes valuable works out of the public domain for an additional 20 years. But at least we know what those works are. We can look them up on the register and we can subject them to particular conditions or costs associated with that added benefit. And meanwhile, the works that are not still being exploited can be freely used. And so we avoid some of the orphan works problems and just the, the lost benefits um, that we suffer when we we um, re-enclose those works um, behind uh, copyright ownership at a point where nobody even knows, you know, who the owner is. Right. So some really cre a creative approach that, that addresses the concern that some have that they want to have longer terms for certain works. But for, for in many other instances, we avoid the orphan works problem. In many other instances, the work simply entered into public domain. And so it's it's nice to hear I mean, that both with respect to ex flexible fair dealing, digital locks, copyright term, the uh, committee with uh, a, a, for, a forward-looking approach and in a sense revisiting some of the kinds of approaches that were taken a number of years ago. Is there anything else in the report uh, before we wrap up that kind of caught your eye and surprised you either for the good or even perhaps not for the not so good? Uh, yeah, no, I mean, I, I think just in terms of the general tone, I agree with you, you said earlier about the emphasis on 
data gathering and evidence-based policy making. And so for me, that's kind of a big um, takeaway from this. And not unrelatedly, I think, is the committee's resistance to um, the urgings that I'm sure it heard from many um, people before it that Canada consider following the EU lead with something akin to... um, the European Digital Single Market Directive, um, and in particular, Article 17 of that directive that has been so controversial, which is about, of course, online um, content sharing service providers and essentially making them liable for the content that's uploaded by their users. And I think um, what the committee does here is indicative of what's good about the report generally, which is to say... You know, this is a, a controversial area. We understand that there are particular actors and particular pers- uh, people who would like to see um, copyright move in this direction to kind of responsibilize these service providers and um, ultimately make them liable for uh, content that's shared or force them to engage in broad-based licensing practices. And um, here the committee... I think does a good job of saying, you know, we don't know what the implications of this are going to be. We don't know how it's going to look in different member states when it's enacted. And our commitment to um, this evidence-based approach to copyright policy making um, requires that we wait and see. And so I think that's good. And also the tone that's set in that discussion, insisting upon a balanced approach when it comes to online service providers and saying, you know, that the intermediaries here um, are not just service providers, but also record companies, also large publishers. I think these are important observations. Um, but mostly, I think that conversation culminates in a statement that's very important, which is a recognition that copyright law has limited tools to address the kinds of issues that are being presented to the committee. So arguments that Canadian creators and uh, Canadian creative industries are suffering um, that the Copyright Act alone cannot ensure that Canadian creators and creative industries receive um, fair compensation, that it can't solve the problems um, that are faced by artists. And, you know, this to me is key because one of my greatest frustrations actually in the copyright debates is this sort of persistent fallacy that copyright law is either responsible for or even remotely capable of solving the inequities, the unfairnesses that are experienced by artists or the dismal underfunding of culture and the arts in our economic system. And I think for this committee to recognise that the limited tools of copyright law and to acknowledge those in the face of the pleas of content industries is a really important moment. That's a fantastic point. I mean, ironically, that kind of analysis and discussion is what I would imagine the committee thought they might be getting from the Canadian Heritage Committee, uh, but of course ultimately didn't. Um, So recognizing the limits of copyright, especially in the areas you just articulated, are important. Why don't we close by asking about the limits of this report? Uh, It comes towards the very end of the parliamentary session. We've got an election coming up in the fall. Any thoughts on what next for the report and copyright reform in Canada? Well, you know, certainly I hope that this, um, that Parliament, however it's constituted after the next election, 
recognises the value of this report and the importance of the consultative process that led to it and follows through really on a lot of the recommendations that we see here. I don't think it should be politicised. I don't think that it should depend upon um, you know, which party takes power. Um, you know, copyright has always been interesting in the way it sits along party lines. And so hopefully that means that the, the relevance and the pertinence of this report will persist um, over um, any change in government. The other thing that the report acknowledges at the end is that um, copyright policy is necessarily an ongoing and dynamic conversation. And I think that's exactly right. You know, constantly the conditions are changing. We have to have our eye on the different ways in which copyright works as technologies shift and as consumer practices shift. Um, not because we have to go in at every moment and um, change uh, you know, little subsections here and there, but because we have to be aware of the fact that the implications of copyright change as the realities of our consumer culture and our consumption of um, creative content change. Um, so hopefully, I mean, I think this has set a good tone. I think we have a ton of great information here for Parliament to work with. And um, I, I hope that this is the report that really captures the imagination of Parliament and allows for a sort of ongoing copyright uh, review or reform process that keeps its eye on, you know, the public interest and the copyright balance. That's the Law Bites podcast for this week. If you have comments, suggestions, or other feedback, write to lawbites at pobox.com. That's L-A-W-B-Y-T-E-S at P-O-Box.com. Follow the podcast on Twitter at LawBitesPod or Michael Geist at MGeist. You can download the latest episodes from my website at michaelgeist.ca or subscribe via RSS at Apple Podcast, Google, or Spotify. The Law Bites podcast is produced by Gerardo LeBron LeBoy. Music by the LeBoy brothers, Gerardo and Jose LeBron LeBoy. Credit information for the clips featured in this podcast can be found in the show notes for this episode at michaelgeist.ca. I'm Michael Geist. Thanks for listening, and see you next time. <music>